Welcome to Abodo Presents. My name is Daniel Gutzel. For this podcast, we chat to Jason Quinn to discuss the power of predictive thermal modeling. Jason is an ex-NASA engineer. He is literally a rocket scientist who is now working as a building scientist and passive house certifier. Great to have you here today, Jason. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's always good to talk to folks. Jason, we first came across each other while discussing the thermal efficiency of timber windows, and then I learned that you're able to do thermal modeling for buildings. Can you explain more about this? Yeah, so um, thermal modeling for buildings is predictive. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to understand how that building will work thermally. So in other words, if it'll be a cold, damp house or if it's going to be a warm, dry home or how much energy it'll take to heat that office building, that sort of thing. So to do that, we build a computer simulation of a building. So it's kind of funny. You talked about NASA, and I keep sometimes I almost forget. It's been a decade now. You know, when you're designing a rocket, you build a computer model, a mathematical model of that rocket, and you try to simulate all the forces on it to make sure that it'll hold together structurally and everything works. So we do the same thing with buildings. We build a mathematical model called a building energy simulation, and we can take into account the shading of the windows and the way the energy comes through the glass and the way the people inside behave and the walls insulation levels to predict how much energy it takes to heat and cool that building and also how much it's going to overheat. In doing that, you can predict how the building perform, and then you can change the design using that information. That's pretty powerful, Jason. Why should designers have their buildings thermally modeled before they're built? The reason you'd want to have a building thermally modeled as a client and as a good architect or a good designer is you want to provide the best value for your client, right? If you're an architect or designer, you're not in it for the money, but you're in it because you love design. You like producing this place where it's just magical, right? People come home from work or their kids come home from school and it's just a magical place to live. You know, Everything's in the right place. It just makes you feel good. And part of that feeling good isn't just the photographs. It's actually how comfortable it is in the house. So if you're in that house and it looks gorgeous when you're taking the Instagram pictures to send to your mates, but it's cold all winter unless you pay a fortune to heat it, or in the summer it just overheats and you've really got to live outside because it's just too hot inside the house, then it's not what you want to provide as a good designer or a good architect. So thermally modeling the house before you build it lets you tweak things like the glass and other things to make that building be that place you're envisioning for your client. That's why you do it. I can't imagine, Jason, that some designers may push back on this concept and potentially feel that their design may be threatened by, you know, thermal modeling and and the requirements of change due to thermal modeling. I mean, is this a problem? Yeah, I mean, there is some pushback from architects that want to design giant glass boxes and just put some concrete inside and say it's going to be good. I mean, I have a saying I use sometimes in presentations where I say mass and glass is dumb as. Thermal mass in a building, like having a concrete slab, can help the building even out some of the fluctuations from day to night in a summer, in a winter, let's say. And having glass can help heat the building, but it's just dumb because it's like putting a hot rod engine in a building when you really, what you want is a nice constant steady temperature. There are some architects that push back on it, but they tend to be very few. And they tend to be ones that are just completely wedded to this is how I build a building. It has all glass walls and concrete slabs. And I really don't care if the clients are cold in it. They'll just heat it because they've got money to heat it because that's who I work for. In general, architects are really thrilled to figure out that, ah, the building's going to overheat, but all you have to do is change the glass, and now it doesn't overheat anymore? You don't have to do anything else? No, no, all we do is change the glass. I mean, it'll cost an extra 500 bucks, but, you know, it's only a few hundred dollars extra to change that coating on the glass. In general, they're pretty excited to hear that, oh, I can do this, and it fixes it. It doesn't mean they always accept all my advice, and they want to keep their floor-to-ceiling glass on the south side of the building sometimes. But in general, they're pretty, pretty interested to hear the results. 
we got you, Jason, to thermally model our Cadrona cabin after it was built. And I understand that's not the right way to do it. We should be thermally modeling before the building's built. But we learned even after going through that process that it was a couple of small things that we could have done to dramatically improve the performance of the building. Yeah, that's generally the result when we do that, what we call our initial design model, which isn't, it isn't fair to call it that, but we do anyways. What we do is we take that, like for your cabin, we took that cabin and put in the windows and the wall constructions and how the floor worked and how the ventilation system worked in that building and calculated the heating and cooling loads. And as you saw, the heating load was higher than you would have probably expected. And that was partially because of the climate and the insulation thickness selected. So if we had just changed the windows were in that building slightly and some of the other insulation and ventilation set up, you could have dramatically increased the performance. And that tends to be true across all the buildings we look at. There tends to be a couple easy first steps that they could take to really improve the building performance. And with that improved building performance, there's not a huge cost gain. If you want to go all the way to certified pass files, often there is a bigger change required. Like for that cabin, you would go from double to triple glazing, for example. But without having done that that model, there's really no way to predict it. And folks are always surprised at the results. I'm surprised myself. I, I actually thought before we modeled that building, I actually thought that that building would come out to be a low energy building rating with the windows being so well shaded and that particular site, it just wasn't possible. I saw a project in, in the same region, the central Otago region uh, that you had designed, which essentially was a square box, obviously optimized from its energy point of view, but it was actually beautified by the sort of deep rain screen that had created some sort of feature on the outside of the building. Do you see potential for more of this kind of architecture? Yeah, so that particular building was Guy Shaw's design out of energy architecture. So that architectural building, it's a shot over house there. I finally got the name right. So shot over house is yeah, sure. a, it's got a flat front facade. It's actually a structure inside a panel building. The whole front of the building is just a flat face with windows set in it. It would look quite plain. I probably would like it, but it doesn't look very architectural. And what Guy chose to do was to deepen the rain screen cladding, which is all timber, and make this really highly articulated facade. I see a lot of timber going on, uh, passive house buildings. It, it's funny because passive house is about thermal performance. But because you're aiming for thermal performance, what that drives you is away from using steel and concrete in the structure of the building. You use a bit in the slab sometimes, but generally it drives you towards timber because timber is fairly well insulating, right? It's only three times the thermal conductivity of insulation itself. So whereas steel is, what, over 100 times more conductive, you tend to want to use timber in the building, and then it tends to be expressed in the facade as well where you're using a timber rain screen. Only a few buildings I can think of that don't have timber in the facade at some point for passive houses is quite a few. That one's got quite a bit of timber, of course. I guess the main reason I love that building so much is because they've taken a very highly efficient design both to build in terms of cost and simplicity for thermal performance. And then they put this timber rain screen on for decoration and solar shading that makes the building really something to look at as well. To me as an engineer, it's really nice when somebody can do two things at once. They can also make the building perform as well as make it beautiful. Do you take the timber facade itself as part of the insulation layer or how do you model that? The timber facade, no, it's excluded. That cladding is on a ventilated cavity. And because the buildings are very well insulated, the tiny amount of insulation you get from the timber cladding, or even if you use foam cladding with render on it, that plastic cladding systems where they have a big gap behind them, because if it's a cold windy night and then the wind's up, you're going to get cold air into that cavity. So it's mm. effectively we ignore the insulation exterior to that cavity. Flipping the conversation away from a cold environment like central Otago, you recently explained to me a problem that you'd come across of overheating in an Auckland home. Can you explain to us how this sort of thing happens? Yeah, so it was best intentions gone awry, I guess is the way to put it. So nobody was intending to be evil 
the architect was trying to design a very low energy building for a lovely client. Lovely client had a nice site with a bit of a view to the west and a space for pool to the west of the building. So they built a nice glass facade facing west on that building with very little overhangs. I mean, there is some overhang, but not much. Now, the client asked for a passive house, not a certified passive house, but just a house that used very low energy is what she meant. And the architect tried to put in the best things he could for her. So he put in a very well-insulated building with a humongous amount of concrete in it. And then he put in the best glass. He asked the glass supplier for the best glass he could buy for the building in double glazing for this woman. And um, what they put in was the best glass for an old villa. In other words, this glass is designed to capture and retain as much heat as possible with double glazing. So it's very high performance glass. It's probably some of the best glass you can get in the world for capturing and retaining heat. Unfortunately, this is the west-facing facade of the building. So it's capturing all that west-facing sun all summer long and sucking into the building that concrete core. And the building is just insanely overheating. If they had just taken that exact double glazing unit and flipped it around 180 and put the inside of the glass pane on the outside, it would have cut the overheating by something like 20%. Anyway, so I was a, it was another of these ones I got contacted after the building was built. So we thermally modeled the building and worked with the client to put in some air conditioning as well as to put in some temporary solar shading downstairs and some external blinds upstairs to control that overheating for. But it would have been much better to do that beforehand because we could have picked an entirely different glass and she would have not have had to put external blinds upstairs and have overhangs that she didn't really want architecturally. So, I mean, in this part of the world, is overheating more of a problem than having a, a warm environment? Once you put some quality into the building, that's true, yeah. So if you're going to design a low-energy building where you're heading towards, say, passive house or certified passive house level of performance, then you tend to need to focus more on overheating in Auckland. In the rest of the country, you know, like Hamilton South, you tend to still focus on heating more than overheating. But it's certainly in Auckland, it's much more of a concern to be overheating, especially since New Zealand, our, our architectural design tends to have a lot of glass in it. And if that glass is facing due north or due south, it's not a problem. We can control it with overhangs. But if the glass is facing even a little bit east or west, it tends to get a lot of low angle sun. And you've got to control that by running a thermal model and understanding what kind of glass to put in. I guess one of the benefits of this low energy construction is that we don't put out the levels of operational carbon into the atmosphere from operating a building. But what about the other kind of carbon, the embodied carbon in building materials? Well, the easiest way to switch is switch to sustainably sourced timber. I, I know that sounds like I'm playing to, uh, to you, but it's not. It's just true. So I've done a bunch of life cycle analysis of buildings in New Zealand using New Zealand embodied carbon and operational carbon emissions for all those materials. And we look at making built, the first thing you want to do is make the building operationally efficient to drive the energy use down to passive house or even perhaps a little bit lower than passive house in terms of operational energy. And then you need to address the embodied carbon in the building. And to do that, you generally want to avoid steel and concrete as much as possible. It's sort of funny, but our steel and concrete is worse than other countries' steel and concrete, mainly due to the size of our production facilities. So I've been told that the embodied carbon in our concrete is higher than other countries' concrete. And the same thing with our steel. And that's just due to the size of our production volume and the way our production plants are set up. So if you want to reduce the embodied carbon in a building, effectively just reduce the weight of the materials that goes into it is one way to think about it. Materials heavy and thermally conductive like steel or concrete, or even to some extent aluminum, they tend to have lots of embodied carbon in them. And the less we use in our buildings, the lower the embodied carbon in the building will be. Once you get down to passive house energy levels, very low operational energy uses, then effectively over the lifespan of the building, it'll be something like half to two thirds operational carbon emissions and the other half to one third will be the embodied carbon in the building itself. So when you drive down to very low energy buildings like Passive House, you need to really start focusing on the materials and shifting away from steel and concrete. 
Jason, I think anyone listening will understand that this thermal modeling makes complete sense. And it's, it's important from both a, from a wellness point of view and from a carbon emissions point of view. But do you see the same approach being taken to embodied carbon where we actually model buildings based on the amount of carbon the materials themselves embody? So it's very much in its infancy. So the New Zealand Green Building Council has been really good about pushing this in their bigger buildings, like office buildings mostly. We've done a few life cycle analysis with operational carbon calculations for some office buildings I've worked on. And I say we kind of like the world. We, people i worked with did it. And then I've done some embodied carbon calculations for three different certified passive houses in New Zealand. But I was just looking at the changes in body carbon as we added insulation and timber and such to the buildings. So this whole calculating embodied carbon or the carbon footprint of the materials in the building is new. It's sort of a, a, new, a new practice in New Zealand. Luckily, Brands is leading the way with this. Surprise, they've actually got quite a few tools that are available, including LCA Quick or Life Cycle Analysis Quick. So it's a free tool you can use. Basically, you put in the quantities of stuff you're using in your building, and it can calculate the embodied carbon for you. So all you need is a, a QS to put the numbers in, and then you can get the embodied carbon in the building. And then you can play with things like how much concrete is in it. In our case, we used it with an office building where we kept the concrete core and just redid the cladding of the building instead of building a whole new concrete structure. And that significantly lowered the embodied carbon in that building. That sounds interesting, Jason. So you can basically go on to the brand's website and download the LCA quick. Yeah, you can download it for free. They're quite happy to let you have it. It's paid for by the building yeah. levy. So. That's great, Jason. At least we get some value from our money. Just switching it up a bit, Jason, you seem very passionate about something that you call fuel poverty. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so fuel poverty is, uh, is an academic term if you want to think about it, to a real index. If more than 10% of your income would be spent to keep your building warm or cool to the appropriate to a good temperature. In other words, it doesn't if you if you don't heat your house at all because you're so broke, it doesn't say you're in fuel poverty. It's you're in fuel poverty, right? If you heated the house up to 20C in the living spaces and 18C in the bedrooms, how much money would that cost? And how much of that money of your income would that count for? So if it's more than 10%, then you're in fuel poverty. So it's, it's sort of an index because if you think about our, our average incomes in New Zealand and how our homes are built, if you tried to heat an exist, a lot of existing buildings up to 20C in the living spaces and 18C in the rest of the building, the cost is pretty astronomical. And the way we deal with fuel poverty in New Zealand is put a jumper on and just be cold and sick. You know, I've seen numbers in the literature like one in six of New Zealanders has got respiratory illness and there's like a $6 billion cost for health due to this. Our politicians have not chosen to emphasize health in our building code. They focus strictly on money. You know, we have cold damp homes because the people in politics have failed to prioritize health and housing policy. You know, leaders in the building industry are choosing to build the legally worst building they can build. And if fuel poverty is one result of that, is that we have buildings that are just too expensive to keep warm and healthy. That's pretty interesting, Jason. Are we going to get to the point where we could potentially do thermal modeling prior to building and make that something that could be you know, mandatory for building councils? Is that something that could happen? It is practical. It's done overseas. It does, you know, it's, if you look at the cost of a house, the cost of the thermal model is a, is a pittance, right? It's a tiny amount of money. And the changes you can get are quite drastic. The issue we have here in New Zealand, and actually it's in other countries too, it's not exclusive to us, it's in Australia for sure, is that the code compliance is just designed to say the house can legally be built. It's not designed to guarantee a warm, dry home. So people conflate those two. They say that, oh, well, it's, you know, the building's built to code, therefore it must be good. No, no, it's built to code, therefore you're legally allowed to sell it to me. Otherwise you would go to jail. If it wasn't yeah. to code, you'd go to jail. That's not a bragging rights to say it's to code. But that's actually what builders will say. Well, it's built to code. 
Well, that's true. You're not going to be arrested for building this, but it it's, doesn't mean that the building will perform well. I would like to see thermal modeling done for every building before it's built, unless it's identical to the other buildings. If you've got a group home builder building the same exact home in a development to provide low cost housing, then there's no need to model the same exact building over and over again. You've done it once. You just use the same model. But if you're going to do a custom architectural home, I think you're silly not to model it. There is talk in the building code of requiring thermal modeling to a better level than we currently have, which is just code compliance, and perhaps even having body carbon in the building code. And you would have to model that as well. So that's in discussion right now amongst all the, the geeks in the building science world. So New Zealand may, uh, may step up to that soon. And this is happening overseas. In the UK, for example, you not only run what they call their SAT model, which is a, it's a fancy word for the computer model they use for thermal performance, you also do some carbon calculations as well. So they're already heading down that path. So as an indication, Jason, across, say, New Zealand and Australia, I know you operate in Australia too. What percentage of homes would be thermally modeled before they're built? It'd be much, much less than 1%. So it's virtually not happening. No, yeah, right. I would say it's probably um, maybe 300 or 400 a year kind of numbers. Now, understand when I say that, I mean a predictive thermal model. So this is a thermal model where the person who did it would say, oh, no, this is expected to actually predict what the building's going to be like when it's done. There's a lot of thermal modeling that happens according to the building code in New Zealand and in Australia. And those models, if you read the report, the first thing it says is this is not intended to be predictive. It's just for code compliance. In other words, if the code says you can ignore the heat loss out of the floor to ceiling junction in an in a office building, for example, which it might be 1.2 meters of uninsulated bare concrete, then the engineer will actually ignore the heat loss out of that because the code says you can so the, they're going to give their client the best result they can get legally. So they'll ignore the heat loss out of that strip of uninsulated concrete every floor in an office building, which is a huge amount of impact to the building. So when they do the thermal model for performance, they'll literally cheat. Now, it's not really cheating. It's legal. It's what's implied in the building code. But that means the first thing they'll say as a good engineer is that their model is not intended to predict the results of the building. It's just for compliance. Um, so when I say there's so few thermal models done, I'm talking about thermal models that are intended to predict the performance of the building. And, and that's a, a shame. Well, this seems like a raging opportunity for us in, in our part of the world post-COVID to start taking the initiative and putting some predictive thermal modeling in place so that we can build warmer, drier homes for, for everyone. Jason, if people want to get a hold of you, how can they do that? Uh, the two best ways to do that is to go to my website, which is sustainableengineering.co.nz. Or if they just, I wrote a book about a year ago now on uh, Passive House in New Zealand, which talks a bit about predictive thermal modeling and some other things we've talked about. And they can just go to warmhealthyhomes.co.nz. There's a PDF of the book. You can read it all online or you can um, sign up and, and get a PDF sent to your email address if you'd like. And that's, that's free. Excellent. Well, that's been very illuminating. Jason, thank you very much for your time and let's keep spreading this message. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you as part of the Abodo Presents series. 